0: I thought I knew a lot about Beth Moore and then I read her memoir and I learned things I didn't know. I learned things she probably didn't want me to learn. But because she has been faithful to the story God has written with her life and vulnerable to the rest of us, she put it on the page. And I think we are richer for it. Today on Chris Fabry Live, a best of broadcast featuring Beth Moore's story, which she has titled All My Knotted Up Life. If you didn't hear the conversation back in March, you are going to hear it today on the day after Thanksgiving. To those behind the scenes, I say thank you. Ryan McConaughey is doing all things technical. Tricia is our producer. And since it's Friday, that's right, the day after Thanksgiving, you know what that means Tis time for the fabulous Fabry Friday sigh. Here's what it does. One, we oxygenate your blood. Two, we get your endorphins going. Three, we raise your serotonin level. Four, we promote lymphatic drainage. And five, we stimulate your parasympathetic system. That's why we call it the five lung languages. We also stimulate your vagus nerve. We help you release acetylcholine and don't forget what it does to cortisol dissipation. Take in four seconds of air through your nose, Hold it four seconds, and then as you release that air through your mouth, push on the left side of your rib cage to get rid of all that bad carbon dioxide. Today we give a post-Thanksgiving sigh, a boy I ate too much yesterday, but I couldn't help myself sigh. It's a Black Friday sigh, which I don't participate in. There's a lot of sales for things I don't really need. I don't want to steal your joy, though. If you're having fun in a parking lot today, God bless you, friend. Give a one-month-to-Christmas-Eve sigh, a sigh of thanks for all the people who were working yesterday. First responders, police officers, firefighters, paramedics, hospital workers, truck drivers. If you had to work yesterday, thank you, friend. The fabulous Fabry Friday Sigh is brought to you by this station, Moody Radio, and the Society for Better Societies. (laughs) Void where prohibited. Hey, before we get to Beth, would you go to chrisfabrylive.org today? Our thank you for Back Fence Friends and Partners. All this month has been a new novel, From My Heart to Yours. I've been telling you about Saving Grayson. The main character has Alzheimer's. He's trying to solve the murder of someone before he loses his memory. But it's more than a mystery. It's an ode to grace and mercy and forgiveness. Call or click through today. Support us at chrisfabrylive.org chrisfabrylive.org, or call 866-95-FABRY, 866-953-2279. Beth Moore founded Living Proof Ministries in 1994 with the purpose of encouraging women to know and love Jesus through the study of Scripture. Her memoir is titled, All My Knotted Up Life. In March, we got together, and after we chatted about Arkansas, I asked her why she pushed the go button on this memoir.
1: I, th- I think for one thing, especially for those who are writers or like, like to put things in words and record them and, and journal them, I think it's a very natural time. I, I'm 65 years old. It's just that is a time of looking back over your shoulder when you know and hope that you may have many years left and many good work years left. But you do know that most of your life is behind you and most of your professional life or your ministry, vocational life is behind you. And I I think that it's, uh, it's a time of really reflecting on how it's gone and how similarly it's gone to what you pictured it would go like. And for me, I I just, I don't know, Chris, I think at 20, I thought I was going to have it worked out at 40. And then 40, I just was sure I was going to have it worked out at 60. And then you just get there and go, I I can tell you one thing. I I know one thing and one thing only, Jesus is Lord. (laughs) So it's just, oh my goodness. I, I And can I say, because I've been thinking, getting that question, um, I, I think also that there's a part of us that wants to be known in um, a little more of who we are, and I think we are in a time, especially for anyone that has much visibility on social media, you see yourself and your family, maybe your husband, like you see them talked about as if people know them. And I think there's a part of you that wants to go, maybe it's a good time to go, this is what uh, some of it has looked like from the inside. in it's beauty and in some of it's, you know, there's just the brutality of life. <laughs> Life's hard, Chris. It really, really is.
0: Well, I... I want to in this hour. I want to. I want you to lead us where you're going. And so you you took us to Keith, and we could start with your dating and when you met and all of that. But you just alluded to the struggle, and you had to get his permission to share some of the and and HIPAA laws were broken all over the place. Um, you had to get his permission to tell this. How difficult was it for him to say, "Yeah, you can say that."
1: Keith, from the very beginning uh, of meeting him, he had been through so much tragedy. Um, uh, 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 He'd been in a a fire, a house fire as a child, Uh, both he and his brother as toddlers, and his brother was badly burned and only lived six days. And so from the time we met, we were pretty honest with one another, about what we had been through, not some of the, I didn't tell the details of what I'd been through, but he certainly was open about it. And there was already a part of us that thought, hmm, if we can help someone, and at that point it'd just be someone across the table, just, I think we had a lot of compassion because of what we had endured, and so there's been the thought all along, what could is there a way that our story might help someone else and certainly not, not feel so alone? And the thing about these kinds of struggles yes. that I share in the book about our family and our own marriage and our own lives together, these are things that are not uncommon. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to battle various um various kinds of mental illness and or deep depression and despair, uh, fear that you're not going to get out of this season with your mind uh, intact, all of these things. If anybody's got any size of family at all, um, there, at least in their extended family, there's been some kind of struggle, some kind of, of uh, experience with it, and yet we just will not talk about it because there's still so much shame associated with it. And the last thing it is, is someone's fault. So when I, when I sat down with him, because I was getting to the point in the writing where it was going to become our story. And so I wasn't sure how we were going to approach that. And so I just asked him flat out, what, are we going to do something real here? Or what, what does this look like to you? And so we went back and forth. It was certainly, he was like, what, what part are we talking about well what part do you want to talk about and so anyway i'm so proud of him chris i'm yes. i'm deeply hoping that he is affirmed yes. over and over again about his bravery to just say man have i have i known what it's like to have my own mind turn mm-hmm. on me
0: yes.
1: so um I'm, courage. I'm really. It's, it's, yes,
0: it's really courageous. And and when you say, "What are we going to do?" You know, you're the one writing the story. You're there, you're writing about your family. You're writing about your grandparents, mm. and you know, we're, we're, and the, the struggles you've been through. But this really is a we book, oh, not just yes. you and your your husband and and your daughters as well. You tell some of the, the things that you went through, but your your whole family and. Uh, when we come back from the break i've got to ask you about the picture on the very front of the book all my knotted up life beth moore our guest today at the radio backyard fence don't call us our program's recorded but uh, you can go to the website and find out more chris dot beth moore is joining us today at the radio backyard fence And you can find out more about her and the memoir, All My Knotted Up Life. It's at chrisfabrylive.org. I mentioned the the picture on the front of the book, and our mutual friend Karen said, ask her what Keith said about that picture on the front of the book. (laughs)
1: So there there are so many reasons why I would wish that people would know Keith because one of the things about him is he is hilarious. I mean, hilarious and so quirky. And he was looking when they first sent us, and when I say they, I'm talking about Tyndale, when they first sent us uh, several shots at what the cover could look like, and this one was one of them. And Keith looks at it, and he's like, I am really impressed. He said, they did a good rendering of what your family might have looked like. And he said, in the van and everything. And I was like, honey, <laughs> that is us. <laughs> that I said, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my sister, that's my little brother, and that's me. And oh, we threw our heads back and laughed and laughed. But I got to tell you, Chris, because you brought this up in the last segment, and uh, I want to respond to it because there were seven people who I did not want to proceed Mm -hmm. without getting a blessing from. I, I felt like those seven people that I needed to say to them, can you bless this? Can you live with this? And if not, what could we do where I could still tell my story and only my slice of it, not my siblings, but where I could tell my story and tell it honestly without hurting you in any way. And so that was my four siblings and then Keith and my daughters. So those were the people that it was like, this is what I'd like to share. And you know, my my girls wholeheartedly, they they never hesitated. Keith didn't really either. He thought about it for a minute. We put perimeters around it. But my siblings, um, they really have a lot invested in it. Because man, part of our childhood story is very yeah. harsh. Very harsh. Our dad was something else. And again, I only tell my my piece of it. And I told them that I would do that from the very beginning. But I do want to tell you, Chris, they all wholeheartedly gave it. And so I just, what one of my brothers said that made me laugh, he said, well, we'll we can never set foot in our hometown anymore. But he said, beyond that, I think we'll all be fine. <laughs>
0: I don't think that's true. I think people in Arkadelphia will, will, will just love the realistic portrayal. Now, I hope so. Now you, and I have to ask you. So you're the the little girl on the right in the pink shirt, I am. barefoot. Yes. Okay. In the yes. in the mud. Yes. Did you love not wearing shoes when you were a kid?
1: You know, I hate to sound so stereotypical because I know what people think about people from states like you know the, the reputation we might have from being in the hills of arkansas but i tell you we just never ever put our shoes on unless we had to you know we lived up on a hill and it just that oh that's us that that was certainly me so we unfortunately i play right into that stereotype yes yes
0: there is one person on the cover, though, who just passed away recently, yes. and he plays a yes. huge part in the book. When you're yes, sitting there playing the piano, his picture, you know, the drawing yes. of him is up there on the wall. Wayne, I don't want to go any further than you want to, but he got to read the book before he unexpectedly passed away, right?
1: Barely, Chris. This is one of the oddest times of my life. And I I told Keith, I said, once again, when i say all my knotted up life this is a perfect example my brother he could start a sentence and i could finish it we had the same taste in a lot of things and he was just dramatic and he was very uh very very interesting and um and that's not so much me but it was so much him is that the things that he the way he would put things and oh i just was crazy about him and we were just in touch constantly and then Uh, 23 days ago, just on his way to um, a choral group that he was in, in Rome, he just dropped dead on the sidewalk, just gone. Like there was, there's just nothing like that moment that there's no, you can't turn back the clock a few minutes and go, no, undo that. Someone undo that. But I had just sent him, I'd gotten a little stack of copies of the, the actual hard copy, the, the real live, not just the advanced reader, but the real live version. And I had sent it. He had only had it a couple of days. And in fact, his wife was reading it at the time mm. she got the emergency call that he had been taken to the hospital. But this this knotted up thing of this has been an, a very exciting time because the memoir has been has been um, well received. And yet one of the worst times, I have not been in a state of grief like this since my mother passed away 25 or six years ago. This is the biggest loss I have had since that time. So it's not the Lord turning my mourning into dancing, as the psalmist said, it's that my mourning and my dancing are going on. Chris, at exactly the same time. And that's exactly what I'm talking about with the title. My whole life has been like this. Like, it's just like well, everything's all in the big mix of it where I, I can hardly tell what's what. Yeah. I, my insides are so wound up. It's like, okay, am I happy or sad? Well, I'm all of them. <laughs>
0: You know, it struck me when I found out about his death that—and then as I read it, it's like you it, you may have written him a little differently if you had known, you know, if you wrote, wrote this a year down the road, you're looking back nostalgically at Wayne, but you wrote it the way you wrote it as as it experienced it. So there's a purity in that, and, and as I went through it knowing of, of Wayne's passing, I thought— even even more pure and and uh, unadulterated, you know that this is how you Chris, sifted his memory. i, I just <sighs> I thought that was so good
1: that has not occurred to me a single time, and i I am so I will think about that often. I'm so glad you said that I, I I pray that that would be true that it would have been that it wasn't just sentimentality, but yes. it was was our our real story and chris i also there is a picture that is in the book but i posted it uh, several years ago at a point where women were saying this was the age i was when something really terrible happened to me and i there and, and it's in the book it's a picture of me at the piano with my brother's picture over it and it was the picture that i used for s- talking about my my abuse, and one reason it was important to me to clarify who my abuser was is that I had said that it was within my home, and I had said that it was under my own roof. So it was obvious it was a family member. But I, what I did not want at my age, you know, you just don't know. You just don't know at what point are are you. Um, are you off this map and you're with the Lord? And so you don't have the chance to retell any or to to explain any of your story. And I I just wanted it to be so clear that it was that my big brother was honorable to me every day of our sibling lives. It was not my brother. It was my father.
0: Yeah. And that's that's a really hard thing, and so I'm going to go with you right there. the the uh, The picture I'm looking at it right here, and you're turned, looking over your left shoulder,
1: and yes. you've also
0: revealed in the book that you had braces, and there's there's a lot of anxiety oh, in that. Gosh, and, yes. and I was I was trying to figure out, you know, I couldn't find a picture of you where it showed your teeth, and even in this picture, your mouth is closed over them, you know, yes. So, and, and I, yes. did you, did you do, when you smiled as a child, did you try to keep your lips closed?
1: Oh gosh, yes. And if I did have to open, like I, I kept my mouth covered at the point that it was the worst, which was they needed to grow all the way in before they could begin to put wires around them. I I'd had an accident where I had fallen face first into a coffee table and it had just pushed all my baby teeth, my front baby teeth up into the roof of my mouth. And so when they came, when those teeth came in, it was just disastrous. But there was this, this period of time that they had to grow all the way back out and get settled before they could put wires around them. That may not be true today, but it was true in, um, in that day for sure. So, oh gosh, I was so embarrassed of it. And you know, Keith was said to me this morning, he was reading the book again last night. And he said to me, the stories that Elizabeth. He said, I had forgotten you had to wear corrective shoes. He said, corrective shoes and buck teeth. He said, really, pitch-toes and buck teeth is too much for anybody. But I did. I've told people before, I didn't, Chris, I didn't just have buck teeth. I had the kind of teeth you could have put a sandwich on and and kept it for later. Like, oh my gosh. It was just, I was such an insecure kid. Oh my mercy.
0: And you can laugh at that now when as I'm looking at this picture, though, you know, and you're sitting at the piano and you're playing whatever the the piece is that you're playing. It looks like you know you're real confident and and there's oh, yes. purity. It's so arrogant
1: looking. Uh huh. It's
0: this is 1962, but inside there is this secret that you are having oh, to keep at that point, and it's your dad.
1: Yes, and I I don't even know. Here is a mystery. Again, nodded up. And a lot of people are going to be under uh, to are going to be able to understand rather what I'm talking about here. This is the part of it I can't answer for myself because I all I know is that even by that time I knew something was bad wrong. Now I have so many so many spaces that are just blackouts in my early childhood that I can't put it together. Now, I know exactly when the when the scene in the car and in that era of time, I know exactly when that happened and what age I was. But Chris, even as a little girl, I mean tiny, I'm talking about little, little, I could sit on the church pew by the time I was six, for sure. And I could look around me and I I, I felt ashamed of myself. And I would think to myself, I, I want to be a good girl so badly. I want to be a I want to be a good girl. I want to be a good girl. I wish I could be a good girl like them. And this is when, at a point when I don't have any clear memories of abuse happening. And so I don't, there's so much I can't connect early on. All I can tell you is that somehow I was already manifesting behaviors. Of someone who had been abused before my memory kicks in about it and about the exact uh, case, the exact times. So it's uh, it's a wild thing what the mind does to you know to protect itself.
0: And th- so sharing that, then again. You want to help others who are going through, and Mm -hmm. and that's what has happened through the years, as you've mentioned this in conferences and and, in the books that you've written, now telling the, the full truth, vulnerable truth. What is the response? What are people saying who read this?
1: I will tell you from even as recently as a few days ago when I had an opportunity to speak at a launch event for the book, I had women that came up to me afterwards and hugged me and whispered in my ear. Chris, I have no idea through the years how many have whispered in my ear that they had never told they had been abused. So that's gone on throughout my whole entire ministry life, that they would say, I've never told anyone. But that night, I had this woman, that woman, that woman, that woman. I would say that first night, maybe as many as five that said the same thing happened to me. And I knew that they meant it was their father. And one reason why I wanted in these last years, you know, I said to Keith, why at this point would we hold back if it could be of comfort or help to someone um, because I mean here we are in our mid 60s and what I said there's a very particular shame that goes with incest very very uh, very invasive Chris and to be able to say no I, I'm I'm talking about my perpetrator, should have been my protector. It should have been the last person, the last person who placed a harmful hand on me. And I just think that that to know the context and to be able to say even this shame, this displaced shame, this this invasive, this bone-deep shame is what Christ gave his life on the cross to free us from. That it's this, that even with that in my life, that I have found joy in Christ Jesus, and I've found hope in Christ Jesus, that there's literally nothing he will not enter into. And we really do believe that there's so much that, the, especially a victim, takes on the whole responsibility of it. Chris, I wouldn't come forward because what what if i ruined my family right. now n- never mind that my father had already broken our family to bits but i was still carrying the burden that if i ever tell this i will ruin my family uh, this is just something that needs to be let's let's say this out loud and and say before our god and king Um, this is not of the Lord, and the Lord can deliver me from the, uh, the shame and the madness of it, and from owning something that just was not our fault. And you know what I love about the power of the cross, Chris, and I want to say this because I not only have been a victim, I have also made a thousand poor decisions, foolish decisions, done some of the stupidest things. And I am so thankful to say that those things, as I bring my confession before the Lord to repent of my sins, I have a God who says the cross is big enough. And so I've just... We have a message of forgiveness of sins and a freedom for the oppressed in our gospel. And man, I want to be able to be direct about it, just as directly as my life allows me to be.
0: Beth Moore is our guest, All My Knotted Up Life. Her memoir is our featured resource at chrisfabrylive.org, chrisfabrylive.org. More straight ahead on Moody Radio. Back to Beth Moore here on a best of broadcast of Chris Fabry Live. Thanks for joining us today. Would you click CareNet when you go to the website? If you've never heard of them, they are a pro abundant life gospel infused ministry that cares for the unborn as well as the mother and father going through an unplanned pregnancy. There's a network of something like twelve hundred pregnancy centers. That serve hundreds of thousands of men and women every year. Free ultrasounds, free pregnancy tests, pregnancy decision coaching, options counseling, material support if they choose to keep the baby and raise the child themselves. Click CareNet today. I think it'll encourage you. There might be somebody who needs to know about CareNet who doesn't know, and you'll be the conduit. Go to chrisfabrylive.org and click the green CareNet button today. Beth Moore has written All My Knotted Up Life. And Beth, you just talked about the hard part, your father's sexual abuse of you. But there, is, there are other people in this story. For example, is it nanny? Is it, is it nanny that you can tell me about? If I just say that word, nanny, what comes to your mind?
1: Oh my goodness, you talk about a handful. So for our listeners, that was my maternal grandmother. We called her nanny. So so don't have it in your mind that I was from a wealthy home and I had an actual nanny. No, no, this was my grandmother. And from the point that my parents eloped, when they... Came back from eloping. She literally lived with us all of our lives until she passed away when I was in the middle of high school at at 16. She lived with us um, all of our lives. So our town, Arkadelphia, Arkansas, where I was raised, was about in the middle of these two communities that were both about oh, 40 45 minutes to different um, sides of that small town. But they were both from literally. I, I don't. I say not just from the hills, but from the bowels of Arkansas. <laughs> so my town was an actual college town. So Arkadelphia has two universities in it. So we we had... Our, it was an educator's town we had great strong churches, all of those kinds of things but my own home, the the vernacular that we spoke our accents and all this was all coming you know from the rural parts and my grandmother, I don't suppose she ever had a noun and verb that actually agreed. <laughs> it just wasn't the way she talked. She was a mess and not everything about her was wonderful. Of course, this was a point in Arkansas of deep, deep, uh, heinous racism. And I won't in any way um, romanticize her in every way because it just, that was a very, very sinful side of her that I, I couldn't have known fully at that time but I even knew we and my brothers and sisters would say the same thing we even knew that she was out of line and inconsistent with her christian testimony but she was in the middle of everything always. And I say in the book, and it is the truth, there was never anything she did not have an opinion about, and she always shared it. But I can tell you just one little picture, and I don't know if I I put this in there or not, but it was in the days that we had one line, but two telephones. So one was in the hall, one was in the kitchen. My grandmother thought absolutely nothing. She thought it was her calling, her absolute business, that whoever was on the other phone, she listened in unashamed. You I would walk through the kitchen and I would know she is listening in on a phone call with one of my brothers or sisters and maybe their boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever whatever, good friend, whatever. And just unashamedly. I mean, she just she'd wave at you like, Leave me alone. I'm you know, I'm busy here. She just was a mess. She was a mess, but such a figure in our home, such a big part of it. And I could always depend on walking in the door and that woman would be standing there with her hands on her hips watching for me to come through the door. <laughs>
0: yes. That's the power of you telling the story because as soon as I was reading that... I thought of my own grandmother, and I would I would stay with my grandmother. And at night, she would let her hair down. She kept it up in a bun, but at night she yes. let her hair down, and it went almost to her knees. It was just this long, yes. gorgeous hair, which was the same with you. But my grandmother didn't chew tobacco, and yes. so I wanted I wanted to ask you. The first question I had here on the program was to ask you what would, what brand did she chew. <laughs>
1: Let let me tell you something. Now I'd have to ask my parents that, and they are no, well. Maybe my oldest sister would know that, so I'm not going to be able to answer that. But I can tell you, you have never felt the fear when you've got. For in this case, it was my great grandmother that chewed tobacco and spit. In oh, it was your great grandmother. And I okay. can't. Oh yes, she, and she's the one that twirled her hair into a bun, and I, I swear and declare that it's so that she didn't dangle it in that shawl. But listen, we called her great-grandmother, and I also couldn't understand, because a little kid doesn't know that you mean a generation older than your grandmother. So I was always like, you know, why does she get to be great? My my nanny was a great-grandmother. <laughs> you know, just silly things that kids think. But I hope it takes some people back. I, I've said so many times, Chris, that I hope something in my story brings some kind of blessing to their memory of their own. Yeah. That my, One of the things that my good friend Travis Cottrell said, who is uh, the worship leader um, at our Living Proof Live events, he said, I relived all my childhood in a Southern Baptist church. Those same classes, those mm. same services, Wednesday night prayer meeting, Wednesday night supper, um, all of those things. And it was a precious way to grow up. I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: Um, there is a story about you when you're eighteen years old and you go to camp and mm-hmm. you're you're just you're going to brush your teeth and yes. something happens at that sink. <laughs> yes. And the woman who who helps you unpack what happened. Tell us mm-hmm. about that.
1: Okay. I I have laughed about this and said, you know, it maybe I made it up, but I'm just gonna simply tell you, if I made up this scene as the moment of my calling, it seems like I could have made up a better surrounding because no, I literally am at a camp with sixth grade girls. I'm 18 years old. None of the mothers wanted to go. It was unair conditioned <laughs> summer camp, missions camp. It was GAs, Girls in Action, Girls Auxiliary is what we call it way back then. So I had said, well, you know, I'll go with them. And so I had gone and we were about midway in the week. I'd gotten up early in the morning. All of them were, of course, out cold because they had been up half the night uh, doing all manner of thing to their sponsors. But, that next morning, I I wish that it was a better story than this, but I literally am at the lavatory. I can still, in my mind's eye, I can smell the, the chlorinated water. I can hear the uh, shower dripping. I mean, this is as crude as it gets at a camp. It's just a bathroom and not even a good one at that, but I sense the presence of the Lord. And I mean, I've I wanted to go back and relive it a, a thousand times, Chris. I'd give anything as, uh, at, at my age to then experience what I experienced at that moment so that I might put from a more mature standpoint, put some kind of verbiage with it. But I just tell you, as an 18-year-old, I, I, I didn't know much. And I certainly would not have known how to expect any kind of calling. That would never have remotely been in my mind. Never. I was a, definitely a church girl. I had an affection for Jesus, but I couldn't have seen this coming. But I'm just going to tell you, I knew that something about the presence of the Lord had, had surrounded me that I could, I could sense it. I could sense it. And I, I just say this because I, enough so that I gripped the sink. I gripped those edges and stood and waited, and there was not anything that I saw, not anything that I heard. But what I will tell you is I was 18 years old at that time. I'm in my mid-60s now, and not one time have I ever doubted it. Not Hmm. once. Not once. Whatever happened there, that sense of the best way I would know to put vocabulary with it was, you are mine. You are mine. And I, I knew that there was a sense that, It meant even my vocational life. So I I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any kind of uh, paradigm for that. And I ran to, when I got the chance, when I got the girls settled in a session that they were supposed to be in, I thought, well, where do I go? I'm I'm 18. I don't know who to talk to. And so I think to go to these, the one that was overseeing the whole camp and of all names not to know at this point, point in my life. I, I keep hoping and I know time is running out because she she was She wasn't old, but she would have had to have been, like I would say, in her 30s, if not 40 or 40 or so. So time is really running out. But I'm so hoping that I hear from someone who either knew her or that she's still there and can contact me. But I go to her and I tell her, I said, I don't know, I just kind of had a a weird thing happen. And she listened to me, Chris. She leaned forward. I can still see the posture of it. I know how she had her hair fixed and kind of a loose French twist. And she leaned forward and she said, I want you to describe to me exactly what you sensed and experienced. And I did. And I, I've thought about this so many times. Why didn't she uh, somehow deflect from it? I, I don't, I'm, I just can't tell you how instrumental the Holy Spirit was in that she didn't in any way dissuade me from thinking that something had happened Instead of saying, well, you know, we can't always explain everything, she said, I believe that what you are describing to me is that you have had a call to vocational Christian service, and she told me exactly what to do. This is at a Southern Baptist missions camp for girls. She said, you're going to go back to your church on Sunday, and when they do the invitation at the end, just like I would have done when I was nine years old and and confessed Christ as my Savior, she said, you go back again. You're going to go up to your pastor, and you're going to say, I am surrendering to a call to vocational Christian ministry, and um, I did. I did exactly what she said, and I have I, I thought now, I, I didn't think it for years, I didn't think to, but now in this age when we know so much more about grooming, Chris, let me tell you something. I have to brag on my pastors, because I never, ever had a pastor in all of my church-going life, which has been my whole life. To this day, I have never had a pastor that treated me uh, in a way that was... Abusive. I, never. I may have experienced various levels of, of sexism, um, as far as that goes, uh, very patriarchal world, but I was the prime candidate for grooming. And that just never did happen to me. My my abuse was in my home. My church was my safe place. And so, sure enough, so he says at the end of the service, Beth has come forward and she is giving her life to Christ for vocational ministry. And I and and so they come up at the end. They shake hands with me and they they hug me and they just stand by me. And and so my life begins I, in this. Crazy ministry world, and I don't even know what it's going to look like. No idea. One of the things that I love that the Lord did in my calling that I I cannot I cannot thank Him for enough is that I sort of sensed from the Lord that it was like just you know follow me. He he didn't call me to a position. You know, I had guy friends that were like, "He's called me to preach. He's going preach." Well, I didn't. There was none of that. He called me to what? I mean, he called me to a person. He called me to himself. And still to this day, that is my calling, to follow Jesus. Where? Where is that? I, I don't know. I'll know that in two years. I'll know where he's got me then. So it's not it's not a dramatic story. But whatever it was that happened that day, it took. It took. It took to this day.
0: Beth Moore's memoir is all my knotted up life our featured resource. You can find out more at the website, chrisfabrylive.org, chrisfabrylive.org. There are many moments with Beth Moore, and here in this last segment, We have a lot to talk about from 2016 on. When are you going to get the political, Chris? When are you going to get to the Anglicanism, Chris? When are you going to get to the Southern Baptist Convention, Chris? When you... I want to say this. I went through the whole book, read the whole book. There were several places where I felt you could have lowered the boom on just about anybody, you know, that you wanted to. And you didn't. And you... This is not a vindictive, uh, even toward your father, even toward the situation in your home. This mm. is not a uh, tell-all, boy, I'm going to get them back for what they did to me. I'm so thankful. Uh, what it is, is very much what you explained a little bit before about Wayne. And and he, that uh, on one of the interviews I saw that it was with CBN, you said... I'm glad that he got to see himself through my through eyes. Through my eyes. Yes. That's what you're talking about. So yes. in the last three minutes that we, <laughs> that we have here, what, what hap- what's gone on from 2016 to today in your own heart and soul? And how are you doing
1: you know, Chris, I, I'm actually so glad that it has waited to this point in the interview and find it very refreshing, because truly, it is the part of my story that was the most public. And so, to me, this is the part that most people know, is this, what I could only compare to what felt like, just because I was so, so involved and loved it so much. This is something I can hardly talk about without... Um, without crying, um, even to this day, I just this was a world that I loved so much and was so, so to use a good Baptist word, so immersed in. I mean, just fully immersed, like my head's all the way under in those waters. This was this was my world. So it felt like an extremely public divorce. Um, I, I, I will always think to myself, well, I I, I feel like I I'll, I'll know what that was like. What it's like to have something like that happen in front of in front of many people because of the brokenness of that relationship in my own life, and that which I most identified with uh, the world that I knew the best. So it was extremely painful, very much like a death, Very, very much like a death. But I, I didn't want to do that. one of the things, Chris, I didn't want, I did not want to be vindictive. I I did not, uh, what I told my editor when I turned those chapters into her, because it was the hardest part for me to write, truly, there was one other, there's a dream sequence in there that just about put me out, that's early on in my life, that put me out for about a week, like I could not pick up a pen again for a week. But in in the latter part of the book, the hardest part for me to write was this part, and so I said, "I'm just going to tell you because it's too close to it." And I said, "I'm just I'm going to tell you what happened, and then I want you to take out anything that sounds like you know bitter or self righteous or anything." I said, "I don't want to be, I don't want any of that." I said, it's "Not not in my heart. I don't want it. I don't want it." And so I certainly don't want to convey it. And so she was a great help to me. On making absolutely sure, and I and also I just there's just nothing. Ugh, forgive me, I, I maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, but I, I know I know this is true about the way I feel about myself. There's just I don't know. There's just nothing grosser than a memoir where you're the hero of your own story. I, I we we don't know ourselves very well if we can get to be my age and still see ourselves as the hero of our story. I've, I've made so many mistakes. I got, I got myself into a lot of trouble because I can't shut up. I don't <laughs> know when to shut up. So, you know, I have to take a lot of blame. But um, I will say this. I want someone to hear this. This is what I'd want to leave your listeners with. That when you think it is all derailed and that this terrible... Terrible thing has happened, and you will never recover from it. You've lost your community, your whole sense of belonging. Then you give it enough time and wrestle it through facing the Lord, not ter- just every day. I just, you know, Lord, I don't know where this is going, but I, I want to walk with you. And what happens is we arrive at a place, and Chris, this is the knot. This is the knot. If you said today, Beth, would you have wanted all of it so that you could get to this place? Don't make me make those kind of decisions. What I'm just going to tell you is that I wouldn't trade what the Lord did to bring me into a community of people I never would have known. And I might have thought, were just people of, yes, yes, they know the Lord. Yes, they love the Lord. But maybe... I might have thought it was a lot of ritual and it was a lot of, liturgy did not have a lot of life to it. Chris, I would have been so wrong. And I just, I thank God that somehow in all of it, he got me to a place, at least for now, he wanted me to be. And it feels like in the process that the whole plan derailed. Trust your God who is sovereign. You're merciful and gracious, compassionate God, and He still will get you where He wants you.
0: Thank you for sharing your heart. We just barely scratched the surface of this rich, rich story. Beth Moore, appreciate your heart. Thanks for spending the time with us today.
1: My great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, Chris.
0: Again, if you go to the website, chrisfabrylive.org, All My Knotted Up Life by Beth Moore is our featured resource. Thanks for listening. I hope it's been encouraging. Chris Fabry Live is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.